Welcome to the Magic Valley Bible Church Sermon Podcast. Magic Valley Bible Church has been serving the Magic Valley for 20 years and is located at the corner of Gooding and Main Street in downtown Twin Falls, Idaho. Our service starts at 9 a.m. and is streamed live on our YouTube channel. For more information, please visit us on the web at www.mvbibletf.org or Facebook at facebook.com slash mvbible or YouTube at youtube.com slash mvbible. Magic Valley Bible Church, built on God's Word. All right. Um, Well, as you can see, it's another substitute teacher day here. It's kind of a little surreal for me because usually, you know, pastor's gone when I'm up here, so I know that's confusing to you as well as it is to me. I don't get it. But anyway, um, I feel like I'm preaching to the preacher today or something. It's... But anyway, I know Pastor Barry just got back, him and the guys that got back from the Shepherds Conference, and for the like probably the last three days, they've been listening to probably some of the greatest pastors around. They've been listening to guys like John MacArthur and Steve Lawson and Bodie Bachman and all that kind of stuff. And then, of course, you know, he comes back to his home church and who's standing behind his pulpit, you know. it's Sorry, I don't know what to do. Because um, I do a really very lousy... Uh, John MacArthur impersonation, I'll say. I think the only two things we have in common is that we both are Christians and we both preach wearing a tie. After that, it's it's pretty easy to tell us apart. So, but of course, my goal this morning, I think, is going to be to keep you all awake. I know all the guys; they just you know came back from the Shepherd Conference. They're tired. You lost an hour of sleep, so that's one of the goals. I heard of this one pastor. He. Uh, He um, had this old man, he was sleeping all the time during his service in the very back there, and well, this one day, this this pastor, he just had enough, and and there was this grandson sitting next to this old man, so right in the middle of this uh, sermon, the the pastor just stops, and the guy just says, you know, son, will you wake up your grandfather, and the little boy just kind of looked back at the pastor and said, uh, no, Pastor, uh, you put him to sleep, so you wake him up. <laughs> All right, let's get to the important stuff. Um, this is the time I'm supposed to have Miss Beethoven find, trying to find her a husband, but she ain't even here looking, so I don't know if I should help her or not today. But, um, but you might be thinking, okay, what has taken this girl so long to find a husband? And and. I really know what it is. She's just a very picky person. Because what she's looking for, I know, is she's looking for a godly man. And that's what I love about her. Because I know if if a young man came up to her, if he was rich, handsome, and could wrestle a bull to the ground in less than 30 seconds, if he's not a godly man, then she doesn't have a chance, here he doesn't have a chance in Hades of getting a date with her. I know that. Excuse me. Um, so that, to me, brings up the, one of the main questions. Like, how do you find a godly man? I know some of you young girls out there are probably looking. So how do you do that? Well, believe it or not, I learned this from our very own Tiffany. Okay? You see, um, there was a time, too, I think, when Tiffany was looking for a godly man. 
And this is how she did it. And I'll apologize ahead of time, Tiffany, because I might get some of the facts mixed up, okay? But this is kind of how it went, all right? One of the first things you have to ask yourself, you're going to look for a godly man, is where is the highest concentration of godly men? And obviously we know that's at TMU, the Master's University. So what does Tiffany do? <clears throat> she heads off to a degree in music. Now what you do with that, I don't know, because I can sing for free. I don't know what she's doing with it. But anyway, one day, out of the corner of her eye, she sees this really handsome guy named Nate. But no matter how hard she tries to get his attention, well, Nate just doesn't seem to notice her. <clears throat> Excuse me. I'm going to get in dry here. It's nervous talking about other people. <clears throat> anyway, so Tiffany has a friend, and she says, well, I'll take care of this for you, Tiffany. So her friend just walks over to Nate, pulls the Bible out from under his nose, and just whops him across the head with it, and says, Nate, will you stop reading the book of Jude? How about reading the book of Song of Solomon for a change, you know? And then she... Tiffany's friend points to Tiffany, you know, or points, excuse me, I'm getting this all mixed up, I'm sorry. So Tiffany's friend tells Nate, he says, there's Tiffany, she's over there, go say hi. And now Tiffany's got her godly man. Now there's one other girl, just real quick here, but she too was looking for a godly man. Because see, she wasn't a Christian at the time. And that was my dear wife, Reba. <clears throat> Now, unlike Nate, she did not have to beat me over the head noticing her, okay? When she walked by, I'm like, wow, that's pretty good. Um, <clears throat> but when I found out she was looking for a godly man, I just sit there and I just raise my head and I said, pick me, pick me, please pick me. And she got her godly man that way. So anyway, for those of you that are looking for a godly man, there's a couple of ways to do it. I know one of the techniques works really well because 21 days from now on Sunday, April 3rd of 2022 at high noon, me and my girlfriend will be celebrating our 40th wedding anniversary. So, Yes. Thank you. Well, I hope that applause for Reba because all I've been doing the last 40 years is making up stupid jokes. So. <clears throat> all right. <clears throat> okay. So for some time, we've been talking about um, the only truly God man. Really, I know all you girls are looking for a godly man, but there's only been one. He was here about 2,000 years ago, and now he's gone. But um, we're, right now, we're going to stop here for a minute, and we're going to listen to Jesus as he tells the parable of the rich man and Lazarus. So let's pray. Well, dear Father, we thank you so much for just you giving us a little insight into what hell looks like and, and just kind of the circumstances of it through this parable. We thank you that you would look down upon us and want to keep us from going there. And we just thank you for just loving us, loving this church, and uh, just help us to be strong, be a light in the community, and just to do what pleases you, Father. So. For this time, I ask you just uh, be with me and just help me to do it right, Father. In Jesus' name, amen. Okay, um, let's see. I keep getting my notes mixed up here. All right. 
So I don't know if it was a few months back, maybe a year or so, but um, I attended a funeral of one of the, our dear saints that uh, attended our church. His name was uh, Robert Andreessen. There's a couple of things that were interesting to me when I went to the funeral. I mean, the first thing I noticed that Robert's son, when he came up here right behind this pulpit, he had this big old gun on his side, and, you know, that's not too scary around Idaho, but it did make me think that, you know, that guy could send you to heaven or hell at a moment's notice. But the second thing I noticed was that Robert, you know, he didn't spend the whole time talking about his dad during the funeral. He wanted to give a gospel message for anybody that was willing to listen there. So Robert saw not, not only loved his dad and wanted to talk about that, but he cared about everybody in the room as well. He cared about everybody's eternal destiny. And he used the parable of the rich man and Lazarus to tell those who would listen, not so much about the joys of heaven, but just kind of warn them about this place called hell. Now, I'm sure there's a lot of people, well, I don't know who there is, but a lot of people in heaven that maybe would like to leave heaven if just for a moment and come down and just tell all of you how wonderful and exciting and beautiful heaven is. But I think there's also a lot more that would love to just leave hell, if not for a moment, just to warn you about the horrors of it. So as we study this passage today, we're going to see that God gives us a warning about hell and that none of us have any excuse as to why we don't belong there if we do end up there. So today we're going to hear a rich man try and figure out how he can warn his brothers about this place called hell. As you listen to the sermon today, you're, you too are going to be warned. You're going to be warned about the lake of fire, the outer darkness, the place of torment, Hades, Guinea, the bottomless pit, the abyss, the place we all know as hell. So if you would, you could open up your Bibles to... Luke chapter 16, verses 19 through 31. Um, I use the ESV version, so it may be a little different than yours, but so Luke 16. So it says this, There was a rich man who was clothed in purple and fine linen and who feasted sumptuously every day. And at his gate was laid a poor man named Lazarus covered with sores, who desired to be fed with what fell from the rich man's table. Moreover, even the dogs came to lick his stores. The poor man died and was carried away by angels to Abraham's side. The rich man also died and was buried. And in Hades, being in torment, he lifted up his eyes and saw Abraham far off and Lazarus at his side. And he called out, Father Abraham, have mercy on me, and send Lazarus to dip the end of his finger in water and cool my tongue, for I am in anguish in this flame. But Abraham said, Child, remember that you in your lifetime received your good things, and Lazarus in like manner bad things. But now he is comforted here, and you are in anguish. And besides all this, between us and you a great chasm has been fixed, in order that those who would pass from here to you may not be able, and none may cross from there to us. And he said, then I beg you, Father, to send him to my father's house, for I have five brothers, so that he may warn them, lest they also come into this place of torment. But Abraham said, They have Moses and the prophets, let them hear them. And he said, No, Father Abraham, but if someone goes to them from the dead, they will repent. He said to them, If they do not hear Moses and the prophets, 
neither will they be convinced if someone should rise from the dead. As we look at this parable, there's, you know, outside of the five brothers, there's three main characters in this. The first one is a rich man. He's well-dressed, well-fed, and he's healthy. The other man is poor, malnourished, and sores all over his body. And the third is Abraham, the father of the Jewish nation. And the parable, as we read it, it starts out describing the rich man. So in verse 19, it says, There was a rich man who was clothed in purple and fine linen and who feasted sumptuously every day. Now, every time I come across this verse, when I read about this, I always just think of this rich guy as another one of the poster childs of the health and wealth gospel. Because it doesn't seem to matter. You, know, you can listen to Kefro Dollar. You can lend it to Kenneth Copeland, any of those. Or you could even go back into the Jewish leaders back in Jesus' day. They seem to think that if you're rich and doing great, well, that was supposed to be a sign of God's blessing on your life. Of course, the problem with this theology is if you're not rich and you're not healthy, then, well, you must be doing something wrong. It's either you've sinned or you don't have enough faith. It's basically it's your problem that you're not healthy and wealthy. It's not God's problem. But you can go back even before Jesus' day to see this is pretty bad theology. Even the health and wealth gospel, it was alive and well back in the, the book of Job. Because what are Job's friends telling him? They're saying, Job, you know, why don't, why don't you just stop all this complaining? Why don't you just repent all that rotten stuff you're doing, and then everything should be all right. But who is Job? Well, the Bible describes him as a blameless and upright. He's one who feared God and turned away from evil. So you have to kind of think, well, if Job is such a good person, why is he sitting in a pile of ash, scraping, you know, the sores from the sole of his feet to the crown of his head? I think we all know the answer to it. That was just God's will for Job's life at that moment in time. And this is kind of where we see Lazarus in this same kind of condition almost in verse 20. It says, at the gate was laid a poor man named Lazarus covered with sores. Now, we don't know how often Lazarus was laid at this rich man's gate. But one thing we do know is that he's, he's so weak that he had to be laid there by somebody because he's hungry, he's covered in sores, and in that kind of condition, you can only imagine how kind of lonely or helpless or just kind of worthless he must have felt in that situation. When you look at people like that, and you kind of think, well, nobody cares about him, you know? He's just like at the rock bottom. I mean, not even God would care about him. And I think if he had a wife like Job, she'd probably tell him, you know, why don't you just curse God and die? We're not really sure what he's thinking, but we do know from verse 21 what was the desire of his heart. Verse 21 says, Who desired to be fed with what fell from the rich man's table? Moreover, even the dogs came and licked his sores. So here we see Lazarus, he's so hungry, he just sits there, he's hoping for some crumb that doesn't make it into the rich man's mouth so he could have it. Now most of us, I don't think, we know what it's like to be really, really hungry. Usually an hour after breakfast or two, we're wondering what's for lunch, or I know some of you sit out there going, when is this pastor going to shut up, because I'm ready for lunch. So, But you see, no one gives Lazarus any attention, he just kind of lays there, he's like some sort of worthless human being. And the only attention it seems like he's getting is just dogs wanting to lick his sores. Now, most of us, I think, if we found ourselves in that kind of situation, we'd probably just want to give up and die. And that's where we find Lazarus in verse 22. 
In 22, it says, the poor man died and was carried away by angels to Abraham's side. And the rich man also died and was buried. Now here, as we read this, one of the few times where we see that the rich man allowed to have one thing in common, and that is they're, they're both dead. Now when Lazarus died, it says that he was carried away by angels. Now we don't know for sure who carried Lazarus to the rich man's gate, but now you look at him, now he's being carried away by angels to Abraham's side, which means he's being carried away to heaven. Now you got to think how exciting that must have been for Lazarus. Well, the rich man, he seems to kind of have a totally different experience when he dies, doesn't he? Because there ain't no angels coming to carry him away. It seems like to him, he's just like dropped in the ground and like a deep mine shaft, he just keeps falling right into Hades, you know, he's right into hell, and immediately he's being tormented. So the rich man, he goes basically from comfort to discomfort about as fast as you can say Hades. Now, both men, I think, were probably very amazed at how quickly their circumstances changed after their death. In verse 23, it says, And in Hades, being in torment, he lifted up his eyes, and he saw Abraham far off, and Lazarus at his side. You'd think kind of after the initial shock, the rich man probably just looks far off there, and he sees Lazarus in a way I don't think he'd ever seen him before. Because what does Lazarus look like now? Well, now he looks really healthy. He's no longer hungry. And you could kind of say he's like, you know, hanging out, I don't know, I guess like with the rich and famous. He's hanging out with Abraham. So the rich man's world is really, it's just turned upside down. Now, he probably thought he was going to heaven, doesn't he? Because according to his theology, you know, he had God's blessing because he was rich. It kind of reminds me of the people in chapter 7. You know, they, they think they have God's blessing for one reason or another. You know, they thought that they could be saved because they're doing all kinds of religious stuff. But in the end, Jesus says, depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. And I think, hell, it's, it's going to have a lot of people who thought they were going to heaven. But they don't get there because all their stuff ain't good enough. No matter how many good things you do, it's never going to be good enough to get you to heaven. Jesus said in Matthew chapter 5 that good is not good enough. You have to be as perfect as God if you plan on getting to heaven. Here this rich man, he finds himself in a very painful situation, and he's looking for some relief. So what does he do? Well, in verse 24, it says he called out. He said, Father Abraham, have mercy on me, and send Lazarus to dip the end of his finger in water and cool my tongue, for I'm in anguish in this flame. Well, there's another thing here. Every time I read that, I kind of seem to relate to this rich guy. Not because we're both rich, but it's because he's begging for a drop of water. Because when my uh, oldest son was born, I, and I ended up with food poisoning. I mean, it was probably the sickest I've ever been in my life. I mean, I had stuff flying out, just vomiting and vomiting, and what wasn't coming out that end was coming out the back end. It was awful. I became, like, so dehydrated that my tongue is, like, sticking to the roof of my mouth, and all I wanted was just a sip of water, and as soon as the water hit my tongue, it's just like, oh, I want to throw up again. I just can't seem to get any relief. And so the rich man, too, he wants relief, so he calls out for mercy, and he says, please, you know, you know just, just a drop of water to cool my tongue. I'm in anguish here. Now, I'd like to stop for just a second. We keep talking about this, this rich guy, 
But what is rich? You ever think about that? If I was asking, you know, what do you consider rich? Would it be um, like a CEO of a Fortune 500 company? Would it be, I don't know, maybe you got millions of dollars in the bank or maybe you just won the lottery? Well, I was trying to figure that out myself and I looked down in my Bible and my study notes and there was defined, it says this, the Bible defines rich as having more than you need to live. Now, if that's true, I think, you know, probably everybody in this room is now rich, isn't it? Now, being rich, now, that's, that's not sinful, but having money has your God, that's when it becomes sinful. Martin Luther said this, he said, show me where a man spends his time and money, and I'll show you his God. Now, the book of James, it too had a warning to those who pretend to be Christians, but love their money more than God. So listen to this. This is the warning. If you love your money more than God, this is for you. Come now, you rich, weep and howl for the miseries that are coming upon you. Your riches have rotted and your garments are moth-eaten. Your gold and silver have corroded and their corrosion will be evidence against you and will eat your flesh like fire. It went on and said, you have lived on the earth in luxury and in self-indulgence. You have fattened your hearts in the day of slaughter. I remember after, after I was reading that, I was thinking, you know, food poisoning ain't all that bad, really. So, but instead of Abraham granting this rich man his request for a drop of water, what does Abraham do? Well, he takes this rich guy I get down a little trip down memory lane. In verse 25, it says, But Abraham said, Child, remember that in your lifetime you received good things, and Lazarus in like manner bad things. But now he is comforted here, and you're in anguish. Now, obviously, that ain't the answer the rich man wants when he's asking for a drop of water. But Abraham, he goes on in verse 26, and he says, And besides all this, between us and you, a great chasm has been fixed, in order that those who would pass from here to you may not be able, and none may cross from there to us. So Abraham is basically telling this rich guy that you know his fate is fixed. It's too late to change who you are, and it's really too late to change where you are. And that's the, what makes hell such a horrible place, is that there ain't no hope of getting out of there. <clears throat> that's a pretty horrible thought if you're in hell, but if you're in heaven, you kind of have to wonder why somebody from there would want to come to the other side. I don't get that part. But Abraham is saying, wherever you end up, that's where you're going to end up forever. Now, verse 27, we see the one who ignored a beggar, this rich man, he now becomes the beggar. In verse 27, it said, Then I beg you, Father, to send him to my father's house. So in this verse, I think for, kind of for the first time, you see a rich man, he's asking for a favor for somebody else instead of his own. Because he realized he can't escape the place he's in. And there's... One other thing I want you to note, you, you, you hear this rich guy, he's talking in hell, but you don't ever hear him complaining about being there that he doesn't deserve to be there, do you? I think everyone who ends up in hell knows why they're there. In Romans 1, God in his word gives a list of proofs that he exists. It says, for the wrath of God is real from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. For what can be known about God is plain to them because God has shown it to them. 
or his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world and the things that have been made. So God says, I give you all that evidence, and he ends it with this. So they're without excuse. I mean, you'll know why you're in hell, and you're not going to have any excuse why you don't belong there if that's where you end up. So this rich man, he begs Abraham to send Lazarus to his father's house so his brothers don't end up in the same place he does. It says in, in verse 28, For I have five brothers, so that he may warn them, lest they also come into this place of torment. Now this is where the man in hell, I kind of feel like he's, he turns into an evangelist. See, this rich man knows it's too late for him, and he doesn't want his brothers to end up where he is. So he wants Lazarus to leave heaven and go warn his brothers. Now it sounds like a really good idea, but Abraham seems to have a different plan for this guy. In verse 29, but Abraham said, they have Moses and the prophets, let them hear them. Now we know this rich man is probably a Jew because he's calling Abraham his fathers, so we can also assume he knows about the Old Testament. Moses and the prophets, that, that's what it refers to, the Old Testament. So Abraham really is saying, let them hear them. Or in other words, let them read their Bible. You know, it's always kind of interesting that people are always looking for a way to get to heaven, but the last place they want to look is in their Bible. Because even the rich man thought that the Bible, I mean, that ain't good enough to convince his brothers not to go to hell. So he starts telling Abraham he's got it all wrong. I mean, that reading the Bible, that's not going to work. This rich man, he comes up with a little bit better idea. In verse 30 he says, no, Father Abraham, but if someone goes to them from the dead, they will repent. Well, the rich man, kind of in his own subtle way, is calling Abraham a liar, isn't he? Because he knows some old book like the Bible, well, that's not going to convince his brothers to repent. They need something a little bit more spectacular than that. That's just kind of boring. I don't know what kind of things he went through when he came up with this idea. I came up with a few ideas. If I was trying to impress somebody that there was a hell, I'd send Lazarus down there and I'd maybe, how about this? How about drain the Mediterranean Sea? That'd be kind of fun and exciting. Or how about move Mount Carmel like two miles south? If nothing else, it'd mess up Google Maps. That'd be fun. Or how about maybe you could just rearrange the stars in the night sky and just have it spell out, repent. But see... Nope, that, the most convincing thing that this guy can come up with is having a dead man come talk to him. I kind of feel like this guy's been watching too many zombie movies personally, but no matter how hard he tries, he can't get Abraham to change his mind. Because in verse 31 he said, If they do not hear Moses and the prophets, neither will they be convinced if someone should rise from the dead. Abraham's saying if they don't believe the Bible that no supernatural event is going to change their mind. You know, there's an author, uh, Frank Turek. I don't know if you've read his stuff. He wrote, co-authored the book, I Don't Have Enough Faith to Be an Atheist. During his Q&A sessions, a lot of times he would ask people that are atheists or didn't believe in God and, or whatever, just kind of on the fence, you know, if Christianity were true, would you believe it? And still, most people would say no, even though you had a rational reason to believe it. The reason they don't want to be a Christian is because of some moral reason. 
You see, most people, they don't want to be a Christian because they love their sin more than they love God. Now, the rich man may have loved his money more than God, but now what? Well, now the rich man, I mean, his money, is, it's worthless. He's no longer a rich man. So who is this man now? Well, it looks like he's an evangelist from hell, isn't he? He knows it's too late for him to get out of hell, so he turns to a, into a beggar, pleading with Abraham to have someone leave heaven and warn his brothers about this place called hell. Now, one of the most interesting facts about this parable to me is just the person who's saying it. The person who's telling this parable is the same person who made heaven and who made hell. And we know it's Jesus. You know, Jesus, he talked a lot more about hell than he ever did heaven. And he also gave us a really vivid picture of what hell looks like. As I was studying this, I was just thinking the similarities, the similarities between hell and the cross. I don't think it's any coincidence. When you look at hell and when you look at the cross, what's going on, they're very similar. See, hell is described as what? As a place where there's weeping and gnashing of teeth. Now, weeping and gnashing of teeth, you know, that's just you're just gritting your teeth, you're in pain, it hurts. You're in anguish. And the rich man, he said while he was in hell, I'm in anguish in this flame. And dying on a cross is probably one of the most painful forms of death ever invented. You could only imagine what kind of anguish or pain you might feel hanging on a cross. Hell is also described as a place of darkness. Now there could be two Interpreted two ways. It could be just a, a literal darkness, you know, just like it's dark outside. Or it could mean around the cross, like a dark place where you see the absence of God's love. So what is hell? Well, it's a place of darkness and a place without God's love. And you can see all that happening at the cross as well. We see a literal darkness that came over the whole land as Jesus hung on the cross and it came at about 12 noon and lasted till about 3 o'clock. And there was, you also see at the cross this outer darkness of God's judgment. There were Jesus, right at the end of the three hours, he cries out, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Over years, I, I, I thought, well, how in the world can God forsake God? That doesn't make a bit of sense to me. I mean, I thought, well, maybe God just, went off to heaven and said, I'll see you in a few hours, son, when the torture's over. But, but that's not what happened. I think the best way to describe how it happened, I read it in John MacArthur's uh, commentary. And as I read this, I want you to maybe just stare at the cross behind me and just think about what's going on in that cross during this darkness. He writes this. Oops, sorry. The darkness at Calvary did not represent the absence of God, but his holy, terrifying presence. The Father descended in judgment on Golgotha in thick gloom as the divine executor to unleash his fury, not against sinners, but against the sin-bearer. He went on and said, moved by his perfect justice, God's infinite wrath released an eternity of punishment on the incarnate Son who as an infinite and eternal person, absorbed the tortures of hell in a finite span of time. 
This was the dreadful cup of the divine judgment that Jesus anticipated while sweating blood in the Garden of Gethsemane. You see, reading that, you can see the gods there the whole time that Jesus is hanging on a cross. You know, Jesus spoke a few times as he hung on the cross. There's a few words he said before the darkness came. One time he prayed for his persecutors. He said, forgive them, Father, forgive them, for they do not know what they're doing. <clears throat> he also promised one of the thieves by saying, truly I say to you, today you will be with me in paradise. And then another time he spoke to John to take care of his mother. And then the darkness comes and you don't hear a word out of Jesus for the next three hours. You see, after observing the torches of hell, he cries out these words, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And in those three hours, Jesus, I think, had experienced something that he had never, ever experienced before. And that was the absence of the love of his Father that he had known for an eternity past. Because see, hell is not just a place of anguish and torment, but a place where the absence of God's love or an absence of God's comfort, it's gone forever from your presence. And there's one more little similarity I wanted to share with you on the cross. And that's that both the rich man in hell and Christ, as they hung on the cross, they had this unquenchable thirst. The rich man, he begged for a drop of water. And Jesus, as he's hanging on a cross, cried out, I thirst. So we can see what? We see hell as a place of anguish, of darkness, and thirst. And we can see at the cross, there's a place of anguish and darkness thirst. We see all these things happening. So the rich man is experiencing hell for an eternity, and Jesus is experiencing hell for six hours. Now the rich man, he wanted someone to leave heaven and warn his brothers about hell, but Abraham told the rich man, well, the Bible has all the warnings that you'll never need to escape hell. And even though Abraham refused the rich man's request of sending someone from the dead to warn his brothers, well, a short time later, the request was granted. But it wasn't granted to the rich man. It was granted to us. Because someone from the dead did come to warn us about hell. And that person, of course, is Jesus. So you want to ask, well, who is the evangelist from hell? Could it be the rich man? Because while in hell, he tried to save his brothers, hoping that someone from the dead would convince them to repent? Or could it be that the evangelist from hell was Jesus because Jesus spent six hours on a cross, a place like hell, and he too didn't want you to end up in hell. So God is not just a God of love, is he? He's a God of justice. Now, if you told that to Pope Francis, he'd totally disagree with that statement. I read this, what he said. This is a quote from him. He said the church, and I assume that the church he's talking about is the Catholic church, because I know this church doesn't believe what he's about to say. But he said, the church no longer believes in a literal hell where people suffer. This doctrine is incompatible with the infinite love of God. God is not a judge, but a friend and a lover of humanity. I read that and I thought, man, that 
Sounds like it came straight out of the devil's mouth, didn't it? You have to wonder, like, did the, did the Pope ever not read the story of Noah where he drowned every living human being except Noah and his family? Well, Pope Francis, if you're listening, when you sin against a holy God, there's a price to pay, isn't it? That price is death. The Bible says the wages of sin is death. So if you sin, you must die. And the only way you can escape this punishment is for someone to take your place. And it can't just be anybody. It has to be someone who lived a perfect life and be willing to die for you. And that person can't just die for you. He must take the punishment that you deserve on himself. That person would have to take the punishment that you deserve. Or maybe to say it another way, have to spend some time in hell. And Jesus is the only one who could fulfill those kind of requirements. Now there's one more thing I want you to see at the cross. We know that seeing Jesus on the cross is probably one of the most graphic pictures of hell that you could ever imagine. But there's something else there. It's also one of the most graphic pictures of love and mercy that you're ever going to see. You see, if Jesus had not given us his life that was perfect and righteous, we'd be in the same place the rich man is right now, wouldn't we? I mean, the rich man wanted Lazarus to give him a drop of water just so he could have some temporary relief of the anguish that he was in. But his request was denied. And without the love and the sacrifice that Jesus made, I think all of us would be denied in the same way. Remember, while Jesus is in the garden, what's he doing? He's, he's sweating drops of blood, anticipating this wrath of God. Well, on the cross, I think you could only imagine how many drops of blood of his just kind of fell to the ground. But out of these drops came a gift of eternal life. You see, you can spend eternity in hell praying for a drop of water, but it's never going to come. Or you could spend eternity praising Jesus for the water that he gives. You see, he told the woman at the well in John 4, the water I give, you will never be thirsty again. The water I give will become a spring of water welling up to eternal life. So the rich man, I mean, he's hoping for just a drop of water, but he's denied it. And he didn't just get denied once. It's denied forever. Abraham told the rich man, it's too late for you. But for those of you who still remain, well, you have your Bible. If you believe the, the Bible, not only will you get a drop of water, but you'll have a spring of water forever that Jesus promised. See, the rich man asked for someone to come back from the dead so that those he loved would not end up in the same place he was. And today, we not only have the Bible to warn us about hell, but we have someone who came back from the dead to warn us as well. We have Jesus. All right, well, that's it. You listen to my sermon. Kind of feel pardon the harsh language, but uh, I'd like to say I scared the hell out of you, but I can't because only God can do that, and he uses this, right? So, what do you do now? Well, if you're a sinner... You need to become a poor beggar. You need to ask God to forgive you. Because the Bible that warns us about hell said this, if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you'll be saved. But 
if you're already a person who's been forgiven by God, well, what should you do? Well, I suggest you start singing. Because in Psalm 92, it tells us to sing to the Lord, praise his name, proclaim his salvation day after day. And that's what we're going to do at the communion table this morning. So as we come to proclaim the Lord's death because of his death and resurrection, that's our salvation. So today we've seen two things. We've seen the horrors of of hell at the cross. It's right there, but at the exact same place. We've seen the love and the mercy of God. All right, so uh, with that in our hearts, I'll invite Pastor Bear up and we'll continue our worship and uh, the ordinance of communion. Thank you for listening to the Magic Valley Bible Church Sermon Podcast. For more information, please visit us on the web at www.mvbibletf.org or Facebook at facebook.com slash mvbible or YouTube at youtube.com slash mvbible.